is Hinter Tales. I'm Rachel Dunstan Muller with stories of curious people, places, and events from the margins of history. I am a mother. And as a mother, I can only imagine what I would do if one of my young adult children went missing, the lengths I would go to, the distance I would travel to see that daughter or son again. But for Anna de Graff, a 53-year-old widow from Seattle at the turn of the previous century, these were not hypothetical questions. In the summer of 1892, Anna's 23-year-old son, George, kissed her goodbye and promised he'd see her again in 14 days. Two weeks passed, then three, and there was no sign of him. So Anna began asking around, questioning everyone she could think of. But no one had any idea where George might have gone. Until, that is, a friend of a friend recently returned from Alaska told her that he believed a young man with her son's name had been in Juneau while he was there, along with some other boys. A letter was sent up to Juneau, and it was confirmed, yes. Someone named George de Graff had indeed passed through. Now, Juneau is a considerable distance from Seattle, over 900 nautical miles. But when Anna learned that her son was likely in Alaska, she immediately resolved that she was going to follow him there. If this seems like a rather dramatic decision, especially for a woman in Anna's circumstances a hundred years ago, perhaps you need to know a little more about Anna's life. By the age of 26, when she immigrated to America from her birthplace in Saxony, which is now a German state, Anna had already survived a violent revolution, a war, the death of her first child in infancy, and the near death of her second child from cholera. Then six years after arriving in New York, she and her husband were casualties of the economic panic of 1873. Having lost everything, her husband decided to head west to prospect for gold in Yakima, Washington, where he was promptly murdered. Anna did her best to pick up the pieces of her life. With her remaining children a son and a daughter, she moved to Seattle and opened up a dressmaking business. But try as she might, Anna just couldn't seem to get a break. When the great fire of 1889 swept through Seattle, everything she owned, both her home and her business, burned to the ground. So perhaps Anna felt that she had little left to lose three years later when her son George went missing. Or perhaps she was determined that having lost so much already, she wasn't going to lose her only son. She quickly sold the dressmaking business that she'd managed to rebuild, packed her sewing machine so that she would have a way to support herself while she was searching, and boarded a steamship for Alaska. And his initial hope was that she'd be able to find her son either in Juneau or in one of the nearby prospecting camps. Back in 1892, Juneau was still a small frontier town of about a thousand people, most of them miners. This was six years before the Klondike gold rush, 
So while it was quite a rough and lawless place, it hadn't yet exploded. Anna had no trouble making friends with some of the more genteel settlers, and they, in turn, helped her tour the mining claims in the area so that she could look for her son. For two years, Anna searched, asking everyone she met if they'd heard of or encountered a young man named George de Graff. Finally, in the spring of 1894, someone told her that a George de Graff had stopped in at a sawmill one afternoon. That was the good news. The bad news was that the sawmill and the mining camps it supplied were in the interior, well away from the coast, which meant an arduous overland journey. But it was the first scrap of information Anna had had in two years, and she was determined to follow it, no matter where it led or what it cost. Her new friends did their best to dissuade her. Anna was 57 years old now, and thanks to a badly broken leg that hadn't mended properly, she walked with a crutch. Now remember, this was still before the gold rush. There were no roads through the wilderness, no trains, no steamship routes and the mountain pass that Anna would need to climb to access the interior was too steep for horses or other pack animals, which meant she would have to go on foot. But she was absolutely determined to go after her son. She managed to find a small party making the same trip, another woman and three men, and in July they set off in a tugboat from Juneau to Skagway, which at this point was a ranch with a permanent population of just two. From Skagway they rode upriver to the tiny settlement of Daia, which marked the beginning of their trail. Now, if you glance at a map of the area, you might not be that impressed by the distances you see. It's only sixteen and a half miles from Daia to the top of the Chilkoot Pass, but there is a huge elevation gain over this sixteen miles. The pass is over thirty-five hundred feet, or 1,000 meters above sea level. And each member of Anna's party was packing a year's worth of provisions, which meant that they had to trek back and forth repeatedly in order to get everything up the trail, averaging between 20 and 25 miles a day. They hired native packers to help them carry their provisions, but the packers wisely resigned once they reached the steepest part of the trail. Despite her injured leg, Anna did her share. She carried 30 pounds at a time, over and around jagged rocks, sometimes having to jump from one rock to the next. It got so steep near the summit that Anna would have to thrust her crutch into the air and have someone above pull her the rest of the way. But as challenging as reaching the summit was and doing it over and over many times to get all their provisions across, Anna and her party still had another 800 miles to go on the other side. After crossing the pass, their next task was to pick their way over a glacier, without the benefit of crampons or ice axes, of course, all the while praying they wouldn't fall into a deep crevasse. Then, as they listened to the wolves howling around them, they had to find their way down to Lake Lindemann. From there, the journey was mostly by water, with some portaging between lakes and around 
particularly hazardous stretches of the river. But to make that journey, they first had to get access to a boat. Now, most travelers built their own boats from scratch at this point, out of standing timber. But Anna and her companions didn't have time to build a boat before everything froze and water travel became impossible. They did have $200, however, which was enough to buy them passage on someone else's nearly finished boat. The next 800 miles were a white-knuckle adventure like Anna could never have imagined. They paddled through a storm with waves as high as a house. They sped through whirlpools enclosed by jagged rocks and plumbed canyons as deep and dark as dungeons. They helped rescue the survivors of a capsized boat and passed shores littered with the wrecks of other vessels. On and on the river carried them, seemingly without end, until finally they reached the sawmill at Sixty Mile, where Anna's son had last been seen. But the only person home at the sawmill was the owner's wife, and while she did remember a boy named George de Graff passing through with some of the other young men, she had no idea which direction they'd gone when they'd left, whether up the Yukon River or down. Anna was absolutely sick, but she had to choose, and so she decided to continue downriver with the others in her party, in the hopes that her son might have gone to a new camp in the area just a few miles short of the Arctic Circle. They reached the banks of Circle City on October 31st in the middle of a snowstorm, after more than three months of grueling travel. They'd arrived in the nick of time. By the following morning, the Yukon River was completely frozen. Anna found all kinds of useful things in Circle City. She found work, making tents and shirts at the local company's store, using the sewing machine she'd packed in. She found more work on the side, sewing dresses for the handful of wives who'd accompanied their husbands to the north, and then later for the dance hall girls when they arrived in town. She found satisfaction in planting a small garden the following summer, on top of her cabin's mud roof, where her vegetables would be safe from the town's sled dogs. She found immense pride in helping establish the town's first school, which, at her suggestion, was funded by a huge dance and cake auction. What Anna did not find in Circle City was any trace of her son. She looked for his face everywhere she went, asked everyone who crossed her path if they'd heard of a young man named George de Graff. But if they had, no one remembered him. And so at the end of the long winter, feeling both defeated and homesick, she decided it was time to go back to Seattle then on to San Francisco, where her daughter and two grandchildren lived. But there was one significant problem. Anna's plan was to take a company boat up the Yukon River to St. Michael, on the coast, and then to catch the annual government boat from St. Michael down to Seattle. But the company boat was delayed and arrived in Circle City too late, which meant it was too late to make the connection to the government boat, which meant that Anna 
was stranded in Circle City for another very long, very dark, very cold winter, up to 70 degrees below zero. Now, back in 1895, Circle City had a population of roughly 700, and of those 700, only about 30 were women. While this may sound like a rather intimidating ratio, Anna felt safe most of the time. But she did have a few frightening encounters. One summer evening as she was working in her cabin, a six-foot stranger showed up at her door, demanding the tent that she was sewing. She calmly told him that it belonged to the Northern Commercial Company, and if he wanted it, he would have to wait until she was finished sewing it, and then he could go and buy it at the store. His response was to grab her roughly by the shoulders and insist that the tent was his. Anna tried not to show her fear. She told the stranger to sit down while she finished sewing, and then when she was finished, they could walk to the store together. He let her go, reluctantly, but before sitting down, he went over to the door, turned the key, and put the key in his pocket. Anna kept sewing, trying not to shake, while she racked her brain for a way out. Finally, she pointed to her empty wood box and told her unwelcome guest that she needed to get more wood or the fire would die and her fingers would get so cold she'd be unable to finish the tent. The big man glared, but he got up and unlocked the door. As he was bending over outside to help pick up a log... Anna grabbed a heavy stick of her own and struck him across the head with all her might. His roar brought other men flooding from their cabins, and he fled. But Anna's troubles weren't over yet. Only a few nights later, a terrified dancehall girl raced to Anna's cabin, fleeing a mob of drunken men. This time, however, Anna was ready. She had a gun— and when the men reached the cabin and began shaking her door, she gave fair warning and then fired three times, at which point the men quickly scattered. Understandably, Anna was not happy about these encounters. She took it up with the company manager, her boss, who responded by calling all the miners together in a mass meeting, then putting up signs all over camp warning that anyone who misbehaved would be run out of town and left to starve. The men took heed, and Anna slept more peacefully. That far north, being exiled meant certain death from cold or starvation. Anna was finally able to get out the following summer, to her immense relief. The company boat arrived on time, and she was able to travel upriver to St. Michael's, then down the coast to Seattle, and on to San Francisco to be with her daughter's family. She traded the gold dust she'd earned from two years of sewing work for $1,200 at the San Francisco Mint, which would be roughly $35,000 today. Anna remained in San Francisco for two years, but she was increasingly restless and dissatisfied. Despite its many hardships, she missed the North— and she still hadn't made peace with her son's disappearance. So when news of the Klondike gold rush broke, she was one of the first to start packing. It wasn't gold she cared about. It was George, 
who just might be one of the stampeders. She bought herself a new sewing machine for the occasion and all the cloth and dressmaking supplies she could pack, then caught a steamship from Seattle all the way to Skagway. The first time she'd been through, Skagway was a ranch with two inhabitants. This time, it was a makeshift camp with over 20,000 gold seekers. Once again, Anna hired packers to help carry her 3,000 pounds of provisions up the trail and over the Chilkoot Pass. To get away from the noise and drunkenness that was now part of life at the head of the trail, Anna set up her base camp on a hill some distance above the settlement of Daia. Everything was going smoothly until one night when Anna was woken by a horrendous noise. She rushed out of her tent just in time to watch an avalanche sweep through the canyon below, claiming many lives in its path. Anna and her packers endured more narrow escapes as they continued along the trail. A fierce blizzard, brushes with frostbite, more dangerous rapids on the far side of the pass, and she witnessed a growing number of tragedies as well, including the drowning deaths of an entire boatload of men. Somehow she managed to escape serious harm herself, but thanks to a series of setbacks, the worst of the winter weather had already set in before Anna could reach Dawson City. She and her party made it as far as a Canadian mounted police barracks, still hundreds of miles short of Dawson, where they were told that for their own safety, they would not be allowed to go any further. That because of the weather, they would be forced to remain in the barracks for the remainder of the winter. Another six months. Anna's disappointment was immense. She had logged hundreds of treacherous miles, endured ordeals that most of us can barely imagine only to learn that she'd failed to reach her destination. Despite much opposition from the mounted police, Anna decided it would be better to retrace her journey home rather than endure six months of winter in the tiny barracks. So she sold the bulk of her remaining provisions to the police for a dollar a pound and started back through the snow. There were more police stations all along the way back at this point, spaced about 20 miles apart, and so that was the distance she and her two remaining packers had to walk each day to ensure good shelter at night in the minus 60 to minus 70 degree weather. In the event that they didn't reach shelter, the young packers took turns pulling a small sled that carried two tents. There aren't many hours of daylight that far north in the winter, which meant that they had to start walking well before sunrise and continue walking well after sunset, all the while listening to the wolves howl around them. They made it back to Daia early in the new year, more than six months after starting out. If you Google Anna de Graff, you'll find a picture of her seated on a stone cairn, eating her lunch shortly before making the final push back over the pass. Her feet are wrapped in gunny sacks, which is all she had left once her boots wore out. That entire journey had been for nothing. Anna caught the steamship back to Seattle, 
without having learned anything more about where her son might be. Now, clearly a lesser woman would have given up long before now, but Anna was driven. Nothing was going to stop her in her search for her son, and she still believed that her best chance to find him was to get to Dawson City. So, in the spring of 1899, she set out all over again. This time, she was successful. And when she reached Dawson, she immediately rented a little cabin and moved her sewing machine and all her belongings inside. But she didn't even get a full night's sleep before the hotel next door caught fire, an all-too-common occurrence in Dawson. Anna got out before her own cabin was engulfed in flames. But once again, she'd lost everything. But no matter what life threw at her, Anna was a fighter. She took a job in the fur department of the Alaska Commercial Company and did some extra sewing on the side. She was kept busy from Monday through Saturday, but every Sunday morning in the summertime, she would get up early and walk out to the creeks so she could scrutinize the faces of the miners working their claims. But she never saw the one face she so desperately wanted to see. Seasons passed, years passed, and Anna found that she'd made a life for herself in Dawson. She'd made friends, she had enough work to keep her busy, she even tried her hand at a little claim-staking and prospecting. And all through her time up north, as she was looking for her son, she was also making it her business to take the younger men and women she encountered under her wings, feeding them, encouraging them, providing them with a little motherly advice. Many of them took to calling her mother. Anna remained in Dawson for seven years, then returned briefly to San Francisco to visit her daughter's family and replenish her sewing supplies, before returning back up to Dawson. There was a train by this point from Skagway to Whitehorse, and then the choice of either a stagecoach or a boat the remainder of the way to Dawson. So the journey was much more civilized. Anna continued this back-and-forth trip about every two years. All told, Anna spent a total of 25 years in the North, including two final years in Juneau. But she never learned what happened to her son, and it was a source of sorrow for the rest of her life. George de Graff was not the only young man to go missing during those years of gold fever. Death came all too easily in that rugged country. There were steep trails, avalanches, the perils of the river. There were contagious diseases, exposure, scurvy, even suicide and murder. But if death overshadowed much of Anna's time on the earth, she always chose life. In 1917, Anna's first great-grandchild was born, a little girl, and Anna decided it was time to let go of the past and to begin a new adventure. She returned to San Francisco to stay for good this time. She wrote her memoir when she was 
85, and continued sewing until the end of her life, working as the wardrobe lady at the Pantages Theatre until she was 90. She died of pneumonia the following year. As an afternote, the story you've just heard is a very abridged version of Anna's adventures. My source was her memoir, Pioneering on the Yukon, 1892-1917. The original manuscript lay tucked away in a steamer trunk for 60 years until it was discovered by two of her great-grandchildren and then edited and published by her great-great-grandson, Roger S. Brown, in 1992. If you enjoyed this episode, please join me again when Hintertales will be heading back up north for the true story of a very different Klondike woman. This episode of Hinter Tales was written, narrated, and produced by Rachel Dunstan Muller, with music and sound effects by zapsplat.com. Learn more about my work at racheldunstanmuller.com. 